He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 11, 2023. This is an epic episode 135. State Senator Chris Hansen wants to be Denver mayor, and I think he has a good shot. You will, too, after you hear him interviewed by me. Then Sam Kaufman, my clothier for years. Kaufman, big and tall, I was tall. I guess I was big back in the day. In any event, it let me meet Sam, his dad, Fred Kaufman, and we're talking about neckties, not just with Sam Kaufman, but with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, who brings us his rendition of Shake Your Money Maker. What is the utility of a necktie? For me as a lawyer, maybe it was my money maker. Some people make money by making movies. There's a new Netflix show called You People. Dave Gunders and I give it a review. See what you think. This is an epic power-packed show. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, Instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, Craig. Hey, Chris Hansen. How are you, sir? I'm excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on my podcast. I'm happy to do it. Appreciate the invite. I feel like I've spent the whole day with you. I watched the Channel 4 Regis debate. Good job. Yeah, I watched that, and I watched you on 9 News. Okay. So 
how goes the Denver mayoral sweepstakes? But, well, yeah, gosh, you're right. I mean, you know, we went from what, 27 down to 17. And now, uh, yeah, we're down to the last 55 days of this campaign. And we are just working hard to reach out all across town. And I felt yeah, good about last night was able to, I think, get get some of my ideas out in front of the voters and and uh, yeah, really excited about the momentum we've got. Right. We will get to that because they asked a question that you said, oh, boy, I was hoping you were going to ask me that. It had to do with climate change and some interesting initiatives that I looked up. But let's uh, introduce you to the audience and me because I don't know you that well, Chris Hansen. I've seen your career from afar. I know you're a state senator. You represent my hometown, Denver, East Denver. It's Senate District 31. What are the boundaries there exactly? Yeah, you know, it's it's roughly uh, uh, Larimer Square to Lowry. So uh, most of downtown and then all of kind of East Central Denver, all the way to the Aurora line, uh, down to kind of uh, you know, the Highway 25 or Interstate 25. And and so kind of East Central neighborhoods of, of Denver, about 25 percent of town. I grew up really close to George Washington High School, Monaco and sure. Leedsdale. Is that your district? It sure is. Yeah. In fact, my son is a sophomore at GW, just about ready to start uh, IB next year. Go Patriots. Yeah, it's a, yeah, he loves it. Great high school. What about you? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I I grew up uh, in a little farm town right on the Kansas-Colorado border called Goodland, Kansas. Um, My dad was a high school teacher there. Uh, I had him for three out of my four years in high school, actually, Um, if you can imagine having your dad for that many years in class. And uh, and then my mom was a, a nurse at the hospital there, a little, yeah, a little farm town right on the border. You know, it's it's interesting. Goodland uh, is in mountain time. Uh, Ed Green was my weatherman growing up. Uh, Denver Post was my daily paper. And most importantly, we were all Broncos fans in Goodland. So I, I kind of always you know sort of felt more part of Colorado than than any other state. I wondered why Ed Green kept bringing up Goodland, Kansas. That was for you guys. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, we got a weather station in Goodland. <laughs> but it really gives you a sense of Denver as the capital city, not just of Colorado, but a whole region. And I'd say the oh. Rocky Mountain Empire, but Goodland, Kansas, too. Well, you, you, you know, Craig, you are absolutely right. I've always thought that. I mean, western Nebraska, western Kansas, uh, you know, Wyoming, and, you know, even into Utah, you're right. It's uh, Denver is is the is a regional capital, not just not just Colorado. I'm proud of it. Of course, I'm a native Denverite, and uh, I take pride in that. I do think Denver needs improving. When did you discover yeah. Denver? Did you routinely come here as a boy? Oh, yeah. Did your dad take you to Bronco games or anything cool yeah. like that? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, we'd come out for for uh, you know baseball games. In fact, I went to the second Rockies game in 1993. Uh, and you know, we son come out of a for, bitch. I had to work yeah. in the Denver DA's office, and there uh, you are getting to go. That's you mean right. the the one at Mile High Stadium, the one after yeah. the Eric Young when they were playing Montreal, I think. Anyway, well, you're, yeah, that first series, I I was 17 years old and came out my senior year of high school to, to come to that game. I will never forget it. And it was you're right at the old Mile High. 
and yeah, come out for, for Broncos games, come out and see the nuggets. Um, you know, of course we'd come out and, and go skiing and, and stay in Denver on our way. Um, but yeah, just Denver was always the center of gravity for us when I was growing up. And so I, I guess, you know, I'm in that category like most of Denver, which is I'm not native, but I got here as quick as I could. I have to go back to that opening series, because if you recall, they opened in New York against the Mets, and I think they didn't have a great outcome, but I had only one place to go watch it. I was working at 303 West Colfax, and you're familiar with the Capital Area now. Hell, you represent it. Where do you think I had to go to watch the first ever Rockies game? Oh, you mean to watch the, the yeah, first? Yes, on away? TV, yes. Yeah. I, I'll give oh, it away. Goodness. It's the only establishment really close to the Denver courthouse now, and I'm not proud to say it, but I'm not the guy who designs these things. The Diamond Cabaret. <laughs> hey, uh, you just needed a good TV. I That's just it. needed, say, yes. And people say, were you really watching the game? You bet. But there are a lot of breaks during a baseball game. Anyway, I want to ask <laughs> if you ever go in the Diamond Cabaret, but you know the neighborhood. That's your uh, constituents, yes, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I represent every part of the of the neighborhood. You got it. All right. So if you did go in there, it would be part of constituent services. It's just, yeah, out, outreach program. Perfect. Uh, Tell us about your life. Are you a family guy while we're talking about the Diamond Cabaret? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have, uh, just to be clear, uh, I have never been to the Diamond Cabaret. No, I am happily married man of 21 years, two wonderful teenage boys. Uh, what if I, I invited I, you there to watch a baseball game with me? Think well, about I, it. I'd join you. I'd okay, go. Okay, all right. Yeah. You're still a Rockies fan, even though they're uh, saying 500 is their aspiration? If you're Denver Mary, you got to get that fixed. Anyway, keep yeah, going. Yeah, that was not a great headline, was it? That I was, don't think that was, so. Yeah, I, th I feel like that was not the message they wanted to send to their fan base. I think that like, M in Montford stands for mediocrity, which really, we'd be lucky to get 500. You have to get the right players. Anyway, you're still a baseball fan, so am I. Let's yeah. get back to you being a family man, too. Give everybody your bona fides. Well, yeah, so just to kind of continue that story, you know, I—, I Went, I left Goodland, Kansas and went to Kansas State to study engineering. Um, I kind of caught the political bug. And when I was in college, I was student body president at K-State uh, and then went out and worked in D.C. for a little bit in the Clinton administration, uh, followed by a really incredible year in Johannesburg, South Africa, where I was uh, studying engineering at the university there. And I got to meet Nelson Mandela when I was, was over in South Africa. Uh, it was his last year as president in 1999. Wow. And um, that was yeah, life-changing experience, as you can guess. And uh, yeah, then came back from South Africa and uh, went to grad school, uh, headed up to MIT to do an engineering uh, degree there at the master's level. Now, uh, now you're just oh. showing up. Keep going. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, I really had a wonderful experience in grad school, and I I, I kept going after that. I, I met my wife about that time, and then uh, we went over to Oxford in the UK to do our PhDs. And so had four wonderful years over in the UK and uh, did my doctoral dissertation on the, the power grid of India. So got to live and work in India for a good chunk of time as well. So it's Dr. Chris Hansen. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I've got, got my PhD. Uh, and what about but, your uh, wife? What did she get a uh, degree yeah. in? 
Yeah. So she, she was working on her, she did her PhD in education policy at Oxford, uh, and then came back and, uh, did a law degree, uh, after that. And so, yeah, she's got, a, I guess, a PhD and a JD. Gosh, you guys are overeducated. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, but my I, dad, I, I, you needed against Michael Johnston, my guest last week. He went to Harvard and Yale, right? Yep. So, but you, he doesn't have a doctorate, let alone a couple of doctorates in the family. Did you have time for kids between you doctors? We sure did. Yeah, it's uh, kind of a funny story, actually, because uh, my wife's law school professor was Elizabeth Warren. And no way. She, uh, they were meeting at one point to kind of talk about, you know, her, her, the class she was taking and, uh, Elizabeth Warren encouraged us to start a family during law school. She said, it's the perfect time to start a family because if you need to take one semester off, you know, after the baby's born, it works out great. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. And, uh, yeah, we started, started so our family. That means when my wife... she... Didn't Elizabeth Warren teach at Harvard? She did. Yep. So your wife is a Harvard law graduate? That's right. Yep. Gosh, I want to invest in your children. Tell me about them. <laughs> yeah, so I'd love to tell you about them. They are amazing boys. Um, yeah, Sachin turns 16 uh, next week, so he'll get his driver's license. He's all set to go to take he's his test. He's the GW guy. Yeah, he's the sophomore GW, and uh, his younger brother is Ashwin. He's 14, uh, eighth grader at McCullough. Where's McCullough? Uh, in Park Hill. Shows yeah, what so, I know, yeah. But I do know Park Hill because every morning, Sunday mornings, my dad and I would go to Park Hill Golf Course. Kind of a controversial okay. issue, so we'll get to that. Yes, yeah, a lot of us know Park is. Hill from back in the day. It yeah. was really something. It was run by Dave Hill. Do you know who Dave Hill was? I don't. I don't know, Dave. He was a champion PGA golfer. He famously came in second in the U.S. Open at Hazeltyn to Tony Jacklin, called the golf course a cow pasture, but came in second. He won a lot on the PGA Tour, and he also ran Park Hill Golf Course in Denver. And he had wow. brother Mike Hill on the tour. They were originally from Warren, Michigan, and he was just a character in Denver golf. And there are a lot of great golfers, and I'm going to get right to it because I haven't heard it brought up by anybody, but if you are the mayor, you know Denver has some great golf courses. Do you know about that? Do you have any commitment oh, to keeping them? Oh, my gosh, 100%. And I, I also love to golf. Uh, fortunately, my dad taught me and uh, the little our little golf course in Goodland when I was growing up, and uh, I love to golf, and I've golfed, uh, I think, all of the – the city courses since I've lived here. Um, well, we got Welsher, Kennedy, Overland, Willis Case, City Park, and then there's yeah. some mountain Evergreen, I guess, is owned by Denver. That's right. Yeah, Denver has amazing mountain parks, including that golf course. And yeah, I mean, I'm very committed to you know uh, protecting and and improving our our park system. Um, you know, and I, I realized there's some, as you said, some controversy with the Park Hill, uh, you know, golf course situation. And yeah, happy to talk about that. That was a big subject last night at the debate. Yeah, I saw some of you stood up, some of you stood down. I know Dominic DeZuti pretty darn well. I texted him what a great job he did. It was unwieldy, but it was kind of fun. There was strategy involved. 
Well, let me ask you. People should tune in. YouTube, CBS4, Denver mayoral debate. And uh, what did you think of it last night? Yeah, you know, I thought I, I agree with you. I think Dominic did a really nice job taking a tough situation with, you know, 16 people and just really trying to get the most out of it that we could. And yeah, I thought the format worked well. I thought he did a good job of making sure we stayed on time. And, you know, I, I hope, you know, the voters were able to really learn a lot more about all the candidates. And I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, and, and obviously it's hard, I think, sometimes to to give, you know, the a detailed answer in 30 seconds. It was really short. And uh, and that's always hard. But, you know, and I and, and I also it's tough sometimes with like the yes or no questions, for instance, on the Park Hill Golf Course it turned into a yes or no question, you know, will you vote to to change the easement, which of course is what's on the ballot April 4th for everybody in town. Um, but it's a complicated issue. And I, you know, I sort of lament not being able to, to talk about some of those uh, nuances right. with the voter. And, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question. Right. That wasn't necessarily fair. Although there was strategy involved in your outfit. Kelly Brough, who's already been a guest, she wore all black and she was sitting to the side. So you really couldn't see if she stood up or not. And I think on that Park Hill easement question, she just stayed seated and uh, she blended in. Go ahead. Yeah, which I actually was surprised by. Uh, It's interesting you say that. I mean, I I couldn't see her because I was in, in, in the front row. Um, and so I didn't, you know, see what folks were doing behind me. But look, I've I've been very public about my position. I feel like, you know, I've taken a close read of the conservation easement documents. They very clearly say that the current easement requires that it's a golf course. Um, and you know, I, I think I think East Denver uh, needs a park, and I think it needs a grocery store, and I think it makes a ton of sense to put affordable housing, particularly some high-density housing near the train station. And those are all urgent needs right now in East Denver. And and I feel like, you know, we really need to have a both-and solution. Uh, and we can get a great park, you know, 100-plus acres out of it and accomplish some other really high-priority uh, areas of, of, you know, more housing and, and a grocery store. So that's why I stood up. I mean, I think the current easement is not workable. Um, having that easement stay in place will just mean that the property, you know, will will not get uh, the ability to, to deliver some of those great things that we need. It will be stuck as a golf course. And so I, I think it makes a lot of sense to to go ahead and change that easement. I like your decisiveness on the issue. And I can tell you, one, I'd like to have another golf course there. Two, even though I've been playing City Park and Park Hill my whole life and I was resistant to the changes at City Park, it's a beautiful track now. It's oh. it, it's a gem in Denver, don't you agree? And I oh, wish they, even, go ahead. It's even better than it was. I love that new right. the new configuration. Right, and 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 Park Hill, you cannot appreciate what it was like back in the Dave Hill days, but some land is suited to have nice greens for golf, and Park Hill did. They had beautiful mm. greens, and so mm. it could be done again. It sits in just a nice valley, even with climate change and whatnot. But I'd like to know this about you, Chris Hansen. For example, I know Kelly Bruff has, you know, she ran Denver Career Service. She was chief of staff. 
She's done that for a living. Mike Johnston, he's an educator. What about you? You're an engineer. Tell us about your life outside of government before you became yeah. a state senator, and do you still work in a private capacity? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I mean, I I, I feel like, you know, this is, an, and I think really relevant for this, uh, you know, this job interview that we're in the middle of right now. I mean, who's going to be the CEO of the city and county of Denver? Um, and I, I've really been wanting to make sure I can share with people that I had a long private sector career. Um, you know, after I finished my, my PhD, I went to work for uh, a firm called Cambridge Energy Research Associates, or CIRA, which then got uh, purchased by IHS, uh, whose global corporate headquarters was here in Denver. Um, and so that was really great because it helped, it allowed me to transfer here as soon as my wife finished law school. And, you know, I had 10 years of private sector experience. I rose to the level of senior director, uh, worked for my CEO uh, doing, you know, corporate strategy, corporate M&A, uh, worked on uh, energy sector planning and decarbonization projects all over the world. I uh, got posted to Dubai for a year and a half uh, and working on projects all around the Middle East and South Asia, uh, worked in Europe. Uh, back to South Africa, had a project in New Zealand, uh, even Exotic Michigan was on <laughs> on the on the list, and you know got to really uh, understand corporate finance, uh, infrastructure finance, um, and and how to solve complex problems in the private sector, and you know running large teams, running large budgets. So I think it's really relevant uh, for this important you know job interview that that is the mayor campaign. Um, and that private sector experience, I think, is is really important uh, because fundamentally, you know, we're hiring a mayor to manage a big service enterprise and 11,000 plus employees and a, you know, $4 billion budget in total. So I really appreciate that question. I can imagine. So where was your home office here in Denver? Yeah, with the, the corporate headquarters was located uh, in the Inverness area near the, the Park Meadows Mall. So sure. south of town. I know, but, yeah, we, that's another great golf course. Denver should yeah. buy it if you become mayor. No, there you go. Yeah, that is a good and, course. Uh, so you were in the Inverness area. Have you ever worked uh, out of downtown Denver? Well, yeah. I mean, I so in 2015, I left my job to campaign for the state house. Um, and so, you know, I've been, been it was successful in the 2016 election to, to the state house and then switched over to the state senate in 2020. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my my office is now the, the capital and, uh, you know, I've been down there for seven, seven years. now. Did that require you to quit your job? It does. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, we uh, there's this sort of perception that the state legislature is part time. Um, my experience, especially, you know, serving on the Joint Budget Committee for almost four years is that it's essentially a full time job. Um, I do do a few things outside the legislature, like I, I started a nonprofit called the Colorado Energy and Water Institute, which is focused on uh, energy and water policy in the West. Uh, so that's been a really fun, fun project to do outside the legislature. And I also teach a couple of graduate courses for uh, CU uh, in energy markets and energy economics. Nice. Out of the Denver campus or Boulder campus? Uh, yeah, the Denver campus. Yep, that's right. So you see you, Denver. Wonderful. What do you consider your wheelhouse? What is your best talent? Well, oh, goodness. Well, you know, I um, I guess professionally, I would say, you know, my area of expertise is uh, infrastructure planning, 
um, and and really doing uh, complex strategy projects around you know resource allocation and budgets for for infrastructure projects. That's kind of how I really uh, earned my keep in the private sector when I first started. Um, and I think you know that's been a really great background for me as I've been on the Joint Budget Committee and, and worked on state finance. Uh, and as well as energy policy. So, I, you know, I was kind of joking at the debate last night. I was so happy to get an environmental question. I was hoping it wouldn't be missed uh, in the debate because, of course, we started off with, uh, you know, very important topics of public safety and homelessness and housing. Um, but I was really glad that Dominic got to the important environmental questions for Denver and, you know, how do we reduce the brown cloud? How do we reduce uh, the impacts of climate change? How do we reduce emissions over time? Um, you know, those are, I, I would say, my specialty areas and, and places where I've been able to, I think, make a big contribution uh, at the legislature. Do you consider yourself a good decision maker, fast, decisive? How do you go about decision making? And don't you agree that's an important qualification for being a leader of a city like Denver? Oh, Craig, absolutely. And, you know, I when you ask me that question, I'm reminded of something my dad would often say, you know, he'd say measure twice and cut once. Um, you know, we'd, we'd be working on, you know, a, a, a project when I was a kid and, you know, building a tree house or something, which we did when I was little. And I just remember him using that phrase. And, and I think that's, you, you know, you want to be decisive, of course, but you want to make sure you take the time to listen and learn. Um, make sure you're hearing from all sides before making maybe a too quick of a decision. I think that's how I've really tried to operate in my capacity as a legislator. Um, you know, and as mayor, I will absolutely continue that to, to listen carefully to all parts of the city and, you know, be decisive, but also, uh, you know, take the time to listen and learn first. I get off on the wildest topics between my podcast and my column for the Colorado Sun. Let me tell you what I'm writing about this weekend, a big decision you had to make every day of this campaign, but especially when you're on TV, not when you're on an audio-only podcast. But last night, how did you decide to wear a necktie or not? Do you normally wear a necktie? Was that part of your culture and the company you came from, or maybe back east at MIT and then being around Harvard? I just wondered, you wore a nice red necktie, and I wonder if you put that into that, because let's face it, that was the first time a lot of people got a look at the candidates. Yeah, you know, I, I actually, I felt like that was a very easy decision last night. I mean, this is a this is a serious moment for a serious conversation in Denver, and I felt like I really, you know, it was appropriate to to dress in a serious way uh, for that conversation. So I guess that's kind of how I thought about it. I mean, you know, there's no, I, it, I dress that way at the Capitol uh, as I represent my Senate district. Um, and I felt like that was the right way to, to address the voters of Denver. Um, you know, this is a, this is a really important conversation. And, and I guess I felt like uh, that, you know, that was the right choice for last night, you know, no, no gimmicks, no, no, uh, nothing out of the ordinary, but but just a, a serious, uh, I guess, a serious outfit for a serious conversation. Right. About half the male candidates had a tie. I'm going to write about this, but you seem like you understood for television, you want a solid tie. Some people but, wore paisley, et cetera. 
Do you have experience? Do you have a stylist? I mean, what's going on? You want to be mayor of Denver. I mean, you look good, but does anybody help you? Does your wife? <laughs> well, Craig, uh, I, I wasn't expecting that question. No, I, I definitely don't have a stylist, but I have done a fair amount of you know, TV in my role at the legislature. I've also did a lot of TV in my previous job. Um, I've yeah, been on TV interviews all over the world uh, as part of my previous work, uh, talking about you know, energy policy and, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah, I guess I've, I've always, uh, it's always been good advice when you're going to be on TV, not, you know, to wear solid colors because uh, you don't want checks or, or complicated patterns because they don't, they don't work on TV. So I, it, it did cross my mind yesterday. Now, what class did your father teach at the high school? Oh yeah. He, so he was a social studies teacher. My freshman year, he taught geography my sophomore year, he was my American history teacher. And my senior year, I had him for world history. Did he wear a tie while he taught? Every day. Wow. Every day. Yep. And did he keep that up throughout his career? It, he did. Yeah. He, when, he was, when he was in the classroom, he, he always had a tie on. I, I'll always remember that about my dad. And do you think any teachers in, at GW are wearing ties to teach your 16-year-old now? Um, I am pretty sure the answer is no. I have been I got invited last year to come talk about the state senate at uh, GW, and I did not see any teachers with a tie. But not you one. you had one on. I did. Yeah, I, I did. I wear it so that people will know I'm a lawyer. Do you do that to show you're a state senator, or it's just well, kind of a show of respect, right, and professionalism? Well, that, that's kind of how I yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. You know, I was saying earlier, kind of. You know, if it's a serious conversation and you're trying to really solve a tough problem, I guess, you know, I feel like, you know, and, and honestly, at the Senate, we actually have a rule. You have to have a tie on on the Senate floor. Um, so that is that is a rule of the Senate. But um, but yeah, you know, I Colorado in, in general is more laid back um, and that's fine. And I, you know, I dress dressed in a relaxed way uh, in, in that situation or on the weekends. But, you know, I think for for. Uh, you know, a serious conversation. I, I like to be in a suit and tie. First 16 years of my professional career, I just went to the city and county building in my shirt, tie, and either a sport coat or a suit every day. And if yeah. you win, you're going to be in the city and county building. Will you have a tie on every day? And will you expect that of the people working with you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I you know, look, it's a, it's a formal setting. And you know, particularly the mayor, of course, is asked to to meet with, uh, you know, uh, business leaders, with nonprofit leaders from all over the city. You know, I, I think you know, have the right the right clothes on for the right situation. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the it's it's a very serious responsibility. Is that one of the reasons you want to be mayor? That's a fantastic office and the best building in Colorado. Have you thought about that much? Well, yeah, it's funny. I, I had a chance to talk to uh, Colorado's junior senator about about this, and he John told me right off Looper, yeah. That's right. Yeah, he told me right right away. He said, look, I, this is the, the best job in the state. It's also probably the toughest. Um, and, and uh, you know, tough to argue with uh, the man who's, who's held many of these top positions. And, um, look, that's, to me, one of the most exciting parts about you know, uh, uh, being elected mayor is you get a chance to represent the whole city and, 
and work hard every day for for every neighborhood and 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 every citizen. Um, and it's a, an office that you know you can get a huge amount done on behalf of half of the city, and and that's that's something that I think is really incredible about about the mayor's office. Who are your political role models? Is John Hickenlooper one of them? You know, I. I guess my my first answer to that question is Nelson Mandela. I had mentioned him earlier. Um, one of the things I really took away from the time when I got to meet him was I was was meeting him at a, a ANC, the African, you know, his political party. I was doing an, a campaign event, and he was campaigning in a part of Johannesburg that was probably not going to produce a single vote for the ANC. Um, you know, but I remember being struck by him you know, going and boldly campaigning in every part of the country, uh, talking to every single part of society, um, whether they liked him or not. And that was a really powerful lesson that I took, you know, one of many lessons you could take from Nelson Mandela. Um, and that was one that really stuck with me. So I, I would put him at the, I think, the top of my political hero list. It was interesting toward the end of the debate trying to figure out who's more on the left, who's more on the right in uh, this Denver mayoral sweepstakes. Where would you place yourself? Yeah, I, you know, when I first ran for the state house and when I ran for the state senate, I, you know, I really consider myself a, a pragmatic Democrat. I, I, I suppose, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, on the far left, uh, but I, I think I've, you know, pursued really important progressive tax policy, for instance, you know, especially on the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, uh, trying to make sure property taxes are more fair, um, you know, and, and really trying to use my, I guess, my economic background to help guide those decisions. So I would say I'm pretty progressive on on tax policy, uh, trying to avoid regressive tax instruments like sales tax. Um but, you know, on, on other issues, I suppose I'm more of a moderate Democrat, really trying to find common ground. You know, I've done a lot of uh, work in the state state House and the state Senate with, you know, colleagues on both sides of the aisle and, and really trying to focus on problem solving and not get too caught up on, you know, party labels or, or ideology. And I, I think that's what, you know, voters want. They want to see uh, solutions that work. Um, and, and that's, you know, I'm all about delivering results. At this Capitol, I'm all about delivering results if I'm elected mayor. It's uh, simplistic, of course, but one of the yes-no questions that Dominic DeZuti asked at that uh, forum at Regis was on the urban camping ban. Who's for keeping it? Who's against it? And it seemed to me that the more law and order, dare I say, conservative types would say, yeah, we need an urban camping ban. Others said... No, get rid of it. As I recall, you said we need an urban camping ban. Am I right? Yeah, Craig, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I just don't feel like Denver is going to be successful if we don't have clear and consistent enforcement of, of no open camping in the city. Um, I think one of one of the things I really tried to do last summer was to carefully research, you know, which cities in the U.S. are making progress on uh, tackling the homelessness crisis. And really every example of progress uh, had clear enforcement. You know, San Antonio and Houston come to mind. There are other cities that that uh, are in the same boat, but you know, they it really uh, was a common factor 
that you just can't allow people to camp on the street and have any chance of success. And and I feel like, you know, this is something we need to step up and, and be serious about in Denver. And, you know, folks can feel it and see it all over town where we're just not not getting that that piece of it in place right now. And, you know, I, I think that really is is an important part of, of any any progress that we're going to make in Denver. Right. And Denver is uh, having a spasm of crime. I've been around long enough. In fact, I was prosecutor during the summer of violence, 93, and the late 80s were bad. But right now, crime in Denver is bad, at least. Yes. I think so. What about you? Well, I, I agree. I mean, the number one issue in town is public safety. So let's just, yeah, and as I've been talking to folks in my campaign, I've really tried to stress you know, building uh, a city that works and a, a, a safer, more affordable and greener Denver. Those are the three themes that I've really been trying to hit on. And and safety is at the top of that list for a good reason, because you are absolutely right. We've we've seen, uh, a, a you know, kind of a backsliding when it comes to public public safety of uh, in some cases, you know, to to new uh, record levels uh, and, you know, car theft catalytic converters, uh, some of the categories of violent crimes. We've had murders uh, that have gone back up. And, you know, I'm really feeling like if we have to reinvigorate and and rejuvenate our public safety department right now, if, if the city is going to be successful, if we're going to have a, a working Denver, we have to have great public safety. And so I've, I've really been trying to talk to folks about uh, reinvesting and re- and and rebuilding our public safety department as job one uh, as as your next mayor. What year did you and your wife arrive in the Mile High City? Yeah, we we moved here in 2010. Okay, and I I heard that you have met with Ron Thomas, the current chief of police, good guy, Denver guy. Thank you, went to Thomas Jefferson. We won't hold that against him, but yeah. Right, he's uh, a TJ grad. You're uh, absolutely right. What are your plans for DPD? Are they in good shape, bad shape? They need reform. Well, yeah. I mean, I look. I think there's some obvious telltales here. One, the city is paying out massive settlements because of instances of of police misconduct and, and in some cases abuse. Um, you know, thirty plus million dollars this year. I think was the the figure that I saw. Um, so we absolutely need to reinvest in in world class training and preparation for our officers, and and make sure that we have high levels of accountability. I mean, I was part of the effort of the state capitol to make sure every police department in the state has body cameras, um, and that's an important piece of of creating you know great public safety. And in fact, the officers I've talked to, they really love having the cameras because it also protects them from you know say a false accusation. So I think I think highly trained. Um, highly resourced and and highly accountable is really the the direction we need to go. But it's look, we got to rebuild the department in some ways. You know, we're down right now on recruiting and retention. Uh, the last class at DPD was supposed to be 50 new officers. We only had 18 people show up for the class, and only 12 actually joined the department. Oh no! After the end of the academy, so we've got some tough work to do. And you know, as as your next mayor. I really want to, you know, do that hard work, reinvest in the department and celebrate uh, our great officers um, and really try to rebuild, you know, the the morale and the confidence that the public has in our department, um, because I just don't feel like Denver's going to work if if that doesn't happen. Back in the day, I used to teach at the Denver Police Academy, and it just seemed like a better job back then. But 
Denver can be a great city, and the right mayor can lead it back to greatness. You talk about public safety, and I think you are right. I saw you get real animated during the debate when the subject of distracted driving came up. You brought it up. And tell everybody why that gets you so animated. Well, I mean, you know, the question you may remember that Dominic asked was about Vision Zero, which is is absolutely the right goal, right? We want zero deaths of pedestrians and bicyclists and trying to reduce traffic deaths to zero. Um, And I thought that, you know, the answers that came before me had totally missed one of the most important factors in this discussion, which is a huge rise in distracted driving. Um, And, you know, all of your listeners know this because we see it every day, right? Somebody's swerving out of their lane because they're trying to text and drive or, you know, they're looking at something on their phone and not paying attention to the road. And this is a huge problem in Denver. It's a huge problem, you know, all over the country right now. And there has been uh, some really great evidence from 13 other states that have gotten serious about reducing distracted driving that it massively improves public safety. Through enforcement? Well, that's exactly right. And you think about, you know, the transition that we all collectively made uh, to wear seatbelts. You know, when I was a little kid, we didn't wear seatbelts. And we started to then take it seriously and have People could get a ticket if they didn't have their seatbelt on. And guess what? Now we have 95% of drivers always have their seatbelt on, and we have much lower road deaths as a result. And I I really feel like, you know, that's what we were trying to do with the legislation that I ran with Senator Fields from Aurora, was to try to bring forward a proposal that would really try to change the culture around this and have people, you know, get hands-free devices, you know, a $10 Bluetooth set. That's all it takes. Uh, and but get your and hands what, what happened to that legislation? Well, you know, we passed it out of the Senate twice with bipartisan support, a great vote margin. It went over to the House last year, and one of my opponents in this race refused to even bring it to a vote. Who was that? Leslie Herod? Correct. And so I felt like if we're going to have a conversation about Vision Zero last night, that that is a really relevant part of the discussion. What was um, her reasoning? Well, uh, you're free to ask her. I it was very frustrated because it was stuck in appropriations committee. The bill had what is essentially a zero appropriation, $10,000, just to change some computer programming uh, at the state level. It had no business being hung up in appropriations, and it didn't even get a vote. And it was absolutely inappropriate, and that is a public safety discussion we need to have Um, And it got truncated. I thought you were directing that toward her last night. That was interesting, you calling her out. Do you want to call out any other opponents? Well, look, I I was really trying to be responsive to the question and and let the voters know what I have tried to do to to lower traffic deaths. I mean, I, I used to be a bicyclist. You know, I used to commute by bike every day to work. And I've been hit twice. And both times it was somebody on a cell phone. I mean, this is not abstract. This is this is real. I've been hit twice. You know, my sons ride their bikes to school. Um, I'm worried about them being hit. Thank God it hasn't happened. But, you know, I, I feel like if we're going to have a conversation about road safety and Vision Zero, 
let's talk about one of the root causes of a lot of deaths and let's, injuries. Yeah, let's talk about a future vision because I was just driving through Denver trying to get back here and the streets of Denver could use improvement and you're the infrastructure guy. I'd like to know about technology when I think about all the various ways motor vehicle collisions happen and I do it for a living and I see it all there there are disasters waiting us all the time. You are the PhD engineer. Isn't science going to fix this? Won't vehicles start driving us around without our input? Can't something be done through technology to make Denver a safer, better place? Well, I, yeah, I mean, look, I you're absolutely right. I think there is a variety of, uh, you know, technical uh, you know, new technology that is going to drastically improve road safety. And I, I would agree with your premise, which is, you know, 10 years from now, roughly, I think autonomous cars will be a major, uh, you know, factor on our roads. And one of the upsides, uh, of certainly the promise of the technology is that it will drastically reduce road deaths. Um, because unfortunately road deaths have been climbing, um, after years of decline, they have started to come back up. And so, you know, we've got, We've got work to do, and, and certainly autonomous technology could be a, a big factor in that. But I, I will say, I mean, I you know, the idea of improving safety through better urban design is really important to me. And that plays out, you know, across bike and pedestrian and road infrastructure. It also has a big part to play in just public safety, period, because when you have activated, vibrant public spaces, uh, crime goes down. And I think that's one of our big challenges in downtown right now is we try to rejuvenate uh, and, and reinvent ourselves in downtown Denver is, is getting the right urban design, like on 16th Street Mall, uh, to improve public safety. So there's really important part of, you know, uh, design and engineering that contributes to, to safety. And other things, too, because a smart guy I watched on uh, my YouTube last night taught me that maybe we can salvage downtown by electrifying our buildings. It yes, was sir. you, Chris Hansen. I never heard about it. I looked it up on the internet. I saw McKinsey just did a report about it. Tell everybody what you are talking about and how it could transform our mile-high city. Yeah, uh, Craig, I'm really grateful for this question. I mean, I, I tried to make sure that it got included last night because— you know, this is not a small opportunity. This is a multi-billion dollar opportunity for Denver. And what I'm describing is a, a really huge shift uh, in, in efficiency and reducing, you know, our, our carbon emissions and our air quality problems. And that is electrifying everything in our lives. And that means heat pump technology. That means electrifying our transportation and what I was referring to last night is you take, you know, the, the buildings in Denver, whether a public building, a commercial building, uh, a single family home, there is terrific technology available now with heat pumps to handle all the heating and cooling needs of those buildings and do it at a fraction of the cost. Now, certainly it takes investment up front and there's lots of great financing mechanisms and government, you know, tax incentives to make this transition. Uh, but once we do it, we really drastically uh, lower emissions, lower our utility bills, and uh, and create tens of thousands of new jobs along the way. So it's a huge win-win-win for Denver, and that's part of my vision for how we can be the greenest city in, in the country uh, and essentially pay ourselves to do it. 
If it's so great, are they doing it anywhere else? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, all over, uh, you know, well, really all over the world. I mean, heat pump technology is taking off because it's so much more efficient than using a boiler or a furnace. Um, you know, and, and, you know, think about everybody with the Excel gas bills that we all just received in the mail um, that essentially doubled or tripled. And for many customers, wouldn't it be great if we could stop uh, having to pay, you know, high, high utility bills and that's one of the huge upsides of making a switch over to, you know, ground source and air source heat pumps. I like your background because an engineer, you're not like a lawyer or a philosopher necessarily. You're not going to say on the one hand, or on, engineers, you come up with answers. Am I right? Is that just sort of a different mindset? Well, I, Craig, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's certainly... You know, what I what I strive to do every day as I represent, you know, folks in the Senate, it's certainly what I would like to bring to City Hall, you know, as mayor of problem solving approach, um, getting things done for the city um, and, and looking carefully at the data and and to to make great decisions. And I, you know, I think that's one of the one of the things, you know, as you said, that engineers, that's what we get trained to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm one of the few candidates in this race, you know, that has that kind of technical background and it's something that I hope, you know, voters, uh, you know, will, will find, uh, you know, to be attractive part of my campaign. I think it is attractive. Some things are unknowable until the experiment is undertaken, like this whole mayoral campaign. I've been around since I walked in hired by Dale Tooley and he was running for mayor and I've seen competition between three or four people, but nothing for a wide open seat quite like this. And now you have this fair election fund too. So you're part of this new experience, an experiment of sorts. Is it working? For example, is this fair election fund, is it working from your perspective? Well, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll just say for our campaign, we are trying to take maximum advantage of it because it has, uh, you know, it has the kind of double advantage of empowering small donors, and it provides a great incentive to spend most of your time talking to Denver voters. Right, and and that's why we really made an early decision when we launched our campaign that this was going to be a big focus. And you know, I think it stands out when you look at the fundraising data of. You know, vast majority of our contributions are coming from folks who get the get the match, um, and I think that's a contrast with some of the other other campaigns. We have really tried to prioritize Denver voters in our outreach and our fundraising. It's not just a match; it's a nine times match. And wow, if you could find a family of four that really likes you, gives you five hundred apiece, then that's twenty grand, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, you know, it empowers small donors. And I, I think that has been one of the great uh, upsides of, of the FEF launching this year. Well, I can tell who empowered you. It was your parents, your nurse mother. What was her? Are they alive still, your parents? They are. Yeah, Greg, thanks for asking. What are their and names? Yeah, my, my dad's name is Wally or Wallace. And my mom is Lana. Okay. And so is Wallace still teaching school? No, he's retired now. Yeah, he uh, uh, he's just about to turn 80. So he retired, uh, gosh, uh, nine years ago, I think. 
So Wallace Hansen, the teacher at Goodland High School, for how many years? Oh, yeah. So we moved to Goodland in 1989. So, yeah, he taught there for, gosh, about 30 years. And what kind of ties did he wear? How many ties did he rotate through? Uh, oh, sorry, not 30. More like, yeah, more like 20, 23. Okay, 23 uh, years. But I'm yeah. going back to the ties. I'm just the curious ties. About Oh, my this. gosh, yeah. Uh, you know, it was the double Windsor. Every day, um, uh, you know, I'm trying a lot of, I guess, striped ties is my memory and a few paisleys. Long sleeves or short sleeve shirts? Oh, it depends on the weather. Uh, my high school was a WPA project from the 1930s and had no air conditioning. And so on a, on a hot spring day or a hot September day, it would always be short sleeve. All right, but would your dad loosen a button and pull the tie down a little, or would it always be up there tight? Uh, yeah, no, it was always tied. Always tied. Uh, tied, but up there tight? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And is his son the same way? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I think I'm pretty good at being able to, to relax. and, and uh, I saw yeah, that. Think- With you and Marshall Zellinger, there you wore an open shirt collar, and you did yep. just fine. But only one button open. <laughs> I That's saw right. a nice family picture in the background. Your family, how do they feel about it? You know, when I ran for Denver DA, I had my wife and my two dogs. My two sons were not yet born just as well, but... It's a family enterprise. Are they down for the fight? You've already won elected office, but this is bigger. Yeah, I, you know, it's a great question because, you know, there's it, it is a it's teamwork. I mean, there's there's in my first conversation when I started thinking about jumping into this race was with my wife. And my second conversation was with my two boys um, because, you know, they're in this with me. And whether they're, you know, on stage with me or not, they are. Uh, intimately involved in, in this campaign and, and s- are, are super loving and supporting uh, in their in their help. And it's been, you know, there's ups and downs and campaigns are intense, um, but I couldn't do this without, you know, without their love and support. And, um, uh, you know, from the first day I got into public life, you know, they've been with me every step of the way. Well, Chris Hansen, this is our first conversation and I really appreciate your bringing your full vigor and intelligence to the conversation. I feel like I know you a thousand times better, and I'm only hosting the people I consider to have a great chance to be Denver's next mayor, and I think that's a really important job. I want the best person, and you are one of the major candidates. I wish you nothing but great luck. Well, Craig, thank you. It was such a pleasure to have this time with you. Uh, Thanks for having me on. All right. See you around campus, okay? Great. All right, bye now. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place, so we're not running to a court to try to get 
guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Gosh, it's nice to talk to Sam Kaufman. I get the itch to do it every year, usually in January, back when they had the annual sale at Kaufman's Big and Tall. Sam Kaufman, how the heck are you? Uh, couldn't be better, Craig. Um, you know, we're healthy. Good, good news for that. And um, it's just always a pleasure and honor to talk to you. Well, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your amazing family. I had the good fortune to know your father, Fred. Can you give us the Kaufman family story in a nutshell? Sure. Um, my dad uh, started Kaufman's back in 1958. And about the time in the early 60s, he became friends with Troy Bledsoe, who was then the coach of the University of Denver basketball team, and was seeing the difficulties that tall guys were having finding clothes at all. And also around that time, um, the city of Inglewood announced that they were going to develop and build the Cinderella city shopping mall, which at the time was built as the largest mall West of the Mississippi. And they wanted my dad to come into the shopping center, but it required him to work like hours, like nine to nine, seven days a week, open later on holidays, yada, yada. And he didn't want to do that. And with the advent of department stores at the time, like Sears and Montgomery Wards, he realized that if he was going to succeed, he needed to specialize. And that's when he made the decision to go into the big and tall men's business. And when he ordered clothes for that, when they started to come in, he didn't know from the first day till the end of the week if he was going to have enough money just to pay his bills because he had to tell all of his regular clientele that he could no longer fit them. Uh, luckily, uh, it all worked out. Um, he helped uh, form the American Basketball Association. He was on their advisory board and helped uh, Bill Ringsby uh, form the Denver Rockets at the time. 
And um, we've had a close relationship through the years with many athletes as well as incredible professionals like uh, this guy named Craig Silverman that I'm talking to. Um, we had a good run. It was fun. Um, I uh, retired with my great staff in 2020 after 62 years. And my big thing was to make sure that I honored my father every step of the way. So as I just celebrate his 13th year passing around Super Bowl weekend, I just want to give a big shout out to Fred Kaufman because we wouldn't be where we are today without him. What a blessed memory. And I had the pleasure of knowing his origin story. You started in the late 50s, right? But then it goes back to Europe. Your father was an immigrant. Tell that story. Uh, yes. Um, my dad uh, was a young boy when my grandmother saw the uprising of problems in Germany, and she was able to write to an aunt in New York and get sponsorship. And they came uh, over from Germany to this country um, with their belongings and not like $10 to their name came through Ellis Island, had, didn't speak a word of English, but she had a brother that lived in northern Louisiana. So they were able to emigrate to northern Louisiana and begin down there. A um, number of years later, like eight or ten years later, my dad's brother, Uncle Joe, he, uh, he was born, and through time he developed asthma. And the doctor said that they either needed to move to Phoenix or Denver for the kind of climate that would be better for them, and that's how they ended up in Denver. Yeah, your dad told me the story when they came up through Louisiana thinking they were finally safe, and the family had done well in Germany, but they had to leave without any possessions, and thank God they did. That's why you're here, Sam Kaufman. But in Louisiana, they saw a lynching. They saw a black man hanging from a pole, and they thought, Oh, my God, what did we come to? You remember that story, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they were just coming into the town of Bastrop where they were going to live and meet my uncle. And there was actually three men hanging from a tree. Oh, and from a tree. As the, as the story goes, and who knows, but it was the Deep South back in the 30s, those three men were accused of raping the sheriff's daughter. And there was a quick injustice, I would say. And uh, yes, they, they were like, oh, we, we left hell to come to what? You know, so they escaped Hitler and they come to that. But they, uh, they never saw color. They treated everybody the way they wanted to be treated. And um, through it all, um, helped people out during World War II. Uh, interesting story is my grandfather went to... Uh, St. Louis on a train and he went to a shoe manufacturer and he's talking to the owner and he says to the owner, I would like to buy all of your salesman samples. And the owner looked at him like he was absolutely insane because all the samples were one size and they all right feet. And he, he sold them to my grandfather for next to nothing. He brought him back from St. Louis down to Louisiana and the reason he did that, he was trying to help out all these poor families. And at the time, the government would only, I think, issue, like, I don't remember what the exact number is, but it was like stamps where you could buy, in a year, only two or three pair of shoes or or something like, like that. And they had different goods that you had to 
have these stamps or coupons for. And my grandfather wanted to help people that, that didn't have the stamps and couldn't afford it. So he would let people buy the shoes out of his inventory and then he would just take and put the two right feet in the box. If he was ever inspected by, you know, the local inspectors, they never opened up the shoe boxes. Mm -hmm. They just, they just picked them up to feel if they were heavy enough. And, um, so he was able to help a lot of people out during the way. Uh, they started off uh, living in a, a one bedroom house. Uh, eventually they were able to buy a house that had like three or four bedrooms and one bathroom. And my whole family, they lived in one of the bedrooms and they rented out the other bedrooms to boarders. And, um, that was kind of how, how it all started. Right. My grandfather was the mayor of a town in Germany and came over here and started off being a janitor's helper. Oh, my goodness. What a rags to riches story. And I was there for the riches because you guys had a great clientele. A lot of big men, a lot of professional athletes. Just going back to your dad, wasn't Byron Beck, whose jersey hangs in the Raptors at the ball center, wasn't he an early customer and friend out of DU and then the Rockets and then the Nuggets? Byron was an early, early friend and customer, uh, but more importantly, friend. My dad actually helped negotiate Byron's first contract with the Rockets, and I still keep in touch with him to this day. Um, and back then, you know, there was no money playing basketball, so we would uh, he would actually work in the store during during the summers and stuff and work out. And um, I remember when he would work out over by where we lived, which was near holly and cherry creek drive and um he would he would uh, walk uh up to the basketball courts there at the grade school and he McMain. would mcmain mcmain yeah, elementary Mc, garland park McMain i know elementary. this area yes yeah, yep and he would um he would shoot free throws because he was always really really good at shooting free throws and he if he missed a free throw he did a lap around the lake oh. Lollipop Lake. <laughs> Lollipop Lake, exactly. <laughs> Holy cow, I did not know that. That's fascinating. Byron Beck had a great hook shot, a lost art. Of course, Kareem made it even greater, and he was taller. But you don't see hook shots like that anymore, do you? No, you don't. And Byron learned the hook shot from his mother. Really? That's that's how. Where he was he from? The, the Midwest, shot. Iowa, or somewhere like that originally, or I don't oh, know where God, they had great know, women's I... basketball. Anyway, he came to DU, and gosh, what a role model! Who else were famous customers of Kaufman's Big and Tall? You mean besides Craig Silverman? Yes, besides me. Oh uh, well, we, uh, Raymond Burr was a very good customer when they filmed all the Perry, Perry Mason and Father Dowling shows here in town. Um, Dr. J, Dikembe Mutombo, Kiki Vanderway, Randy Gratishar, Simon Fletcher, Paul Smith. Uh, the, the, the list goes on and on. Um, but most importantly, it was the regular people. They made it happen. I had just as much respect for the guy that worked hard with his hands and he was willing to spend his hard-earned money in our store. My father always said, 
everybody puts their pants on the same way and all their money's the same color. I don't want to talk about pants. I don't want to talk about jackets. We're going to get to neckties because I'm writing a column about it. But I want to talk more about your dad. What was it about Fred? What was his main skill that allowed him to build this success? Was it people skills, buying skills, or what was it? Well, I, I think in the beginning, it was difficult to, to buy and acquire the sizes that he wanted. So in the beginning, he had to pretty much take whatever they would make. Uh, my dad was a very personable, great salesman. I mean, he could sell ice to an Eskimo, as you've probably found out as well. Yeah, my closet with... is full of that. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but he did it with sincerity. And, and many times people would buy things that, I don't need that, Fred, or I don't need that, Sam. And then come back years later going, oh, thank you. That was one of the greatest purchases I ever made. Um, our business was built on the foundation of, again, treating people right and referrals, customer service, great quality merchandise at a fair price. And um, he maintained that um, all the way through the end. Um, when I got out of college and convinced him that I wanted to go into the family business, he said no. He didn't want me to go into the business because he didn't want me to work that hard. And I finally convinced him that I wanted to, and I spent the next two years, though my last years in college, working in the summer and working in Christmas time. And he finally said, I will teach you everything I know, and I'll give you five years. And thank goodness I had the opportunity to work and play with my father for my entire life and basically until he passed away 13 years ago, two days ago, God bless, um, he still came into the store and he was a fixture of, of class and decorum. What a gift to work with your father. He was an incredible character. And did he have to convince manufacturers to make clothing suitable for big and tall men? Was there a change? Did Americans start to get bigger? What happened? Uh, because now you see almost every major line makes tall and big. Was that always the way? No, no, it was very limited. And if you could convince the manufacturers to make the products, um, it was usually after they had made all the regular sizes that they were going to make. And um, it, it was a struggle to get product, and we'd have to order a year ahead of time. There were no computers, so uh, you just kind of do inventory and run by the seat of the pants. And hey, if we run out of size, you may not get, get that item again for another six months. The, nobody was stocking merchandise in those sizes, and the manufacturers really didn't even want to make it because – most vendors made four sizes, small, medium, large, extra large. And what we were asking them to do was to make twice as many sizes, both in the big sizes and the tall sizes, and to do it for less than 10% of the volume. As time progressed, uh, we started to get a number of independents throughout the country that were selling big and tall and not much out of, out of department stores. And the strength of being together allowed us a little better opportunity to get things produced. Um, I think today it's still a very limited access to a lot of brands and a lot of brands don't want to make it again because 
it's twice as many sizes for 10% of their volume. So it's a real pain. Um, but uh, with foresight and, and yes, Americans, it seems like are and, and have been getting bigger. Every generation is getting taller and bigger. Um, but again, because of the specialized nature and the extended number of sizes that are required to, to run a specialty business like ours, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's hard for the big boys to do it and to do it right. And they can't pivot on a dime. So if pleated pants are in style and then all of a sudden it goes to flat front pants, uh, it's not something that if you got 10,000 in stock, you just get rid of. All right, forget so, about the seat of the pants puns as we keep talking because now I'm going to tie you in knots because you sold me so many neckties, your suits, fabulous, sport coats, I mean, overcoats, anything a man could want, shoes in size 18, whatever, they have it at Kaufman's. They did, and they had so many ties I want to qualify you as an expert in ties. How many ties do you think you have sold through the years, Sam Kaufman? Oh, my. Well, I'd have to say hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of ties. And what's now that you're out of the business, right? Uh Uh-huh. Extra tall ties cost more. They're harder to find. What did you have to do to start to get those in stock? That's a very good question. So um, in the beginning, regular length ties were 54 inches. And at the time, uh, extra long tie needed to be 60 inches. As Now, as people have gotten taller and bigger, that standard has gone to 62 and 64 inches. But a standard screen of, of a print that made four regular length ties wasn't long enough to make the tall ties. So they could only make three ties of the of taller of longer lengths and they had to use the fabric of four ties. So that's why extra long neckwear uh, is and has been more expensive because of the lost yield of the fabric and the extra time to try and piece it together to make it. Explain to everybody why a tall guy or a guy with a big belly needs an extra long tie. Sure. Well, for, there's a few reasons. You can have a long torso. You can have a big belly. Like me. Big... I'm the long torso guy. You could have yeah, added that in. Okay. That's right. And, yes. and you could have a bigger neck. All of those things take up length. And when you tie a tie... You want to have the tie basically come down and touch your belt buckle or be a little longer. You don't want it a little short where you're showing shirt. You want it down to the, the belt buckle. And if you're a big guy and you wear your pants low, you, you got that much more length that you need. And then with a regular length tie, for a tall guy, that little back end gets so short, you can't even tuck it into the little rider in the back and so a lot of times you'll see the front of the ties going one way and the back of the ties going another way because let's talk about that little rider in the back the little loop okay the one that occasionally people break that's a disaster when that happens but when did that loop or that keeper what do they call it a slide 
When did that come into passion? Was the loop always there, or was it an invention no. that put the tie clip out of business? No, you know, I really don't know that it put the tie clip out of business. I think that the the jewelry that is associated with neckwear, um, whether it's a tie clip or a tie bar or a tie pin, which I never liked the tie pins because you actually had to poke a hole right. through the tie. And, um, you know, those those come and go. You know, they some guys would wear them and some people never did. The, the little loop in the back that that identified the brand of the tie, whether it be Robert Talbot or Armani, you know, that's, that's how you could tell the brand of the tie. And sometimes even if I had a tall guy and they didn't have enough length on the back part of the tie to go through that rider, we'd take it off and move it up as much as we could to try and give them some relief on that. Now, you could think, okay, so you have a little tail in the back. Nobody sees it. So what's the damage? But I can tell you as a tall man, it just doesn't feel right. You're self-conscious, right? You probably weren't. I always wondered, Sam, how tall are you? Did you wear your own stuff or did you, did you need, what are you, about 6'3"? Yeah, so I always wore my own stuff. Um, hey, you know, the price was right. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I'm but six, did you six, have three. to wear? Do you have to wear a tall man tie to get by? Yes. Uh, and and another reason why, um, even even people that are maybe on the border of regular and tall, will wear a tall tie, is depending on the fabric. A printed fabric is thinner. A woven fabric is thicker. And then depending on the knot that you tie. If you tie a four-in-hand knot, which is a real simple wraparound knot, that uses less fabric. If you tie a half Windsor or a full Windsor, that requires more fabric. And if it's a woven tie, it takes up a lot of extra length that way. And so I'd see a lot of guys on the edge to buy a longer tie so that they could tie the kind of knot that they wanted, especially on woven fabrics. You've had that experience of the back end of your tie just not quite reaching the loop, and it doesn't feel right. You have to tie it over. It's a problem. I don't think women yeah. understand this, right? <laughs> well, and plus that, you got a noose around your neck. Yes. <laughs> but I guess that's less of a problem than having to wear a bra all the time or some of the, some of the women things that they have to wear. Now you're going to get me distracted with a more favored article of clothing. I think the brassiere is still here to stay. Of course, when we were kids, we had women burning them, but there's utility to it. What is the utility of a necktie, Sam Kaufman? Well, there is no utility. I think it's the, uh, it's the exclamation point on an outfit. It's, uh, it's like finishing the uniform, um, and it's, it's the panache. And it's the personal style of the person wearing it. Unfortunately, today, Craig, I don't see much more neckties happening. Uh, you'll see, you know, professional like yourself who, who goes to court probably wearing them. You'll see um, doctor, some doctors. You'll see lawyers. You'll see politicians. But on an on an average regular day basis, you just don't see professionals wearing neckwear uh, nearly what they used to. And I, I found that in the last 10 years of my business, a steady decline 
in the number of ties that we sold, which meant that I also offered less. Well, you got to know when to hold them, know when to pull them. You got out at just the right time, right at the start of the pandemic, which further accelerated the decline of people dressing up, putting on neckties. But it is still in the news. Mitch McConnell, the other night, State of the Union, wore a Ukrainian-colored flag tie that sent a big message. As Sean Payton signaled his affection for the Broncos on Fox NFL coverage, Wearing an orange tie, he admitted that at his press conference where he had another orange tie in a pocket square. I bet you sold a lot of Bronco orange ties through the years. You did to me, too. Yes, we did. And and see, those are the avenues where I see gentlemen still dressing. Um, you know, TV, TV driven is a lot of it. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're still getting dressed up. And it, it's just a classy look. Uh, anybody that's worn ties on a regular basis knows that that's like when you cinch that tie up you're ready to go you're ready to go it's game time um you're a professional and i i think and I, i've talked to many people that when they would get dressed up they just feel different okay how did you cinch it up did you use a double windsor half windsor did you go back and forth and just do a that four style that i think i do what did you no, do I, I, I always did a half Windsor. I like the half Windsor. And another thing that's interesting about personal preferences on neckties is the dimple. Yes. I've never learned how to put in a good dimple. And uh, I blame it on my father. I bet your father taught you how to tie a tie. Am I right? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And we used to have handbooks, handouts that would show you how to tie a tie. Of course, this is before YouTube and all that right. stuff. But uh, there was many a young person I, I showed in front of a mirror how to tie a tie. There was many a, people older than a young person I, I t- taught to tie a tie, and they'd freak out that they wouldn't be able to tie it again. And I'd just loosen it up around their neck and take it off already tied so that when they had to go put it on for their interview, they could just cinch it up um, and, and tie it down. I personally did not like the dimple. I liked a real clean look. So when I'd get the dimple, when I tighten it up on uh, up towards my neck, I just kind of bend the dimple out of it and then pinch it to make the bottom of the knot a little more like a V. I'm very average at tying a necktie. What about you? Are you an expert at that? Would you give yes. yourself a 10 out of 10? Really? I can do it in my sleep. You know, even though I've been retired for a couple of years, I could do it in my sleep. And although um, I'm out of town right now, when I come back, if you want another lesson, I'll be surely happy to give you one. Who was better, you or your dad or equal? Oh, I, uh, I, I'm always going to defer to my father on everything, except for computers. He was not good at computers. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, let's talk about another controversial topic, clip-on ties. Did you guys sell those at Kaufman's? How do you feel about those? There's a certain need for clip-on ties. It wasn't so much for the lazy person, but the people that we did sell clip-on ties, and I had a limited offering of them. It was even harder to get a longer clip-on tie, were A, people that had like arthritis or that they, they couldn't tie physically tie it. But more importantly, it was law enforcement people. Mm -hmm. Because law enforcement people 
uh, wore a clip-on tie because if somebody were to grab a regular tie, if they were undercover or detective mm-hmm. or whatever, they got them by the neck. With a clip-on tie, it just pulls right off. That's so true. Now, can you remember, I think almost every young man can hearken back to the first time they put on a tie and realized they had to cinch it up to the very top and putting that top button, trying to fasten it could be a problem when you're 12 years old and then you got to put a tie on to strangle you. Can you remember that feeling? I, I can remember that feeling. What I always counsel people was to leave the top button unbuttoned and then put the tie around under your collar and kind of work it up left and right so you get it up under the collar, tie the tie, then easily you can button the top button and just cinch it up. Now you sell a lot of shirts too. What do you advise on how tight your neck is supposed to be? Because we've all had that choking experience and it's not good. Oh no, it's 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 not comfortable at all. Uh, I, my measure when I would when I would measure someone's neck was I would put at least one finger inside the tape measure so that you'd have that comfort. And especially in, in warmer days or warmer climates when you sweat, you know, just to not have something that's like choking you so that you could actually want to wear that tie all day as opposed to the minute you don't have to wear it, you're quickly pulling it down or off and unbuttoning the collar. So at least one finger in there. Maybe sometimes two. So, you know, if you measured a tight 17, then you're probably at least a 17 and a half. Yes. I'm in the shrinking phase of my life now. So my neck gets smaller. You've seen that. You get people coming and going, right? And some people actually shrink out of big and tall. But what do you care? You're not in the business anymore. Do you keep a hand in at all, Sam? I um, I keep a hand in, in the industry. How is uh, we are trying trying to learn from a few of my friends that are, are still in it. And in the last year and a half, they've had surprisingly good years with with dress clothing, with suits and sport coats. And and we always sold more sport coats than suits. And I think that was more of a Western area atmosphere than you know, East Coast where they, they wore suits all the time. But I, I equate it to, you know, a, a lot of resurgence finally after COVID in weddings. And so all this pent up demand, people had to go out and, and buy their clothes for the, for a wedding. And also the, uh, the COVID 20 or 15, whatever that number was that guys put on sitting at home in front of their zoom call, didn't have to dress up. And all of a sudden they get the call to go back to the office and they go into their closet and Nothing fits quite right, or maybe the style has changed a little bit. So there was a resurgence in dress clothing, um, which had been steadily weakening, I think, countrywide, although there's pockets, obviously, D.C., New York City, the big cities, where I think there was more dress clothing still being worn and being sold. And uh, I'm interested to see what happens here after this wedding season this spring, if relative demand is saturated except for those few professionals that wear it all the time and you know i mean i I couldn't believe it when i used to go into the bank and they stopped having everybody get dressed up and all of a sudden i'm going in to make a deposit and the teller's in a polo shirt i'm like that's not my banker that's not who i want to give my money to i was expecting a certain 
level of, of dress. Um, I realize dress makes the person or not, in my opinion, but other people will, will maybe talk about productivity being better, more casual. I, uh, I live a very casual lifestyle now, but I, I always adhere to, as we spoke about earlier, uh, that it felt like you know, I was really putting my game face on when I got dressed up. Right. Back to sports head coaches. You think of Tom Landry. Dan Reeves always wore a tie and a jacket, right? And now coaches have kind of workout outfits. NBA coaches don't wear suits and ties anymore. That's a big change, right? It is, and I um, you know, I understand the comfort level, and you know who am I to, to judge? But uh, as an opinion goes, I, I really liked it when the coaches in the NBA did get dressed up, and I liked it when the players who were sitting on the bench not dressed up in uniforms, you know, dressed professionally. You know, I I like all that, but you know, times change and and attitudes change, and. Uh, you got to be young enough to recognize it and go with the flow. Well, it killed your cash cow, but you were out of the business anyway. Can you share a secret or two? Where is the biggest markup? I have to believe ties have a huge markup. Am I right? It's just a silly little piece of cloth, mass-produced, and you can sell it for a lot. What's the most expensive tie you ever sold? A hundred and eighty-five dollars, or the, the like, best of best of class of Robert Talbot. There is great markup in neckwear. Um, another place that there's great markup is anything private label. So the markups are not there on the name brands like they would be on an off-label private label right. that that a company may have because. There they can they they can make it cheaper and then sell it for right underneath a name brand. We always prided ourselves on pretty primarily carrying name brand merchandise. And, and I had asked my dad about doing more and more private label, and he said to me, he said, "Son, if if someone buys a shirt from Ralph Lauren and they don't like it." They don't like a Ralph Lauren shirt. They'll still come into store and shop. They just won't buy that. If they buy a Kaufman shirt and they don't like it, they don't like Kaufman's. Mm -hmm. So we mostly did name brand merchandise and a manufacturer stand behind their products. So the margins weren't as good. Typically, big and tall men's clothing is 10 to 20% more expensive because of the smaller quantities that are produced, the more fabric that it takes to make them. Um, it, those are some of the, the factors that, that go into it, and and you gotta you got you know different kinds of customers out there as you do in in all markets. So you got the value customers, and you got the quality customers, you got the brand customers. You know, they all want something different, and you just you can't be all things to all people. I mean, the guys who shop at a Nordstrom, let's say, they're not shopping at Walmart, and vice versa. God, your father was brilliant. And by locating it at uh, Hampton and Broadway, you got the Cinderella City crowd anyway, right, back in the day? We got that. It was close enough to Denver. Uh, but we really um, we, you know, were close to Cherry Hills. But we really were a regional and national draw. Uh, once people got to find out about us, uh, Gentlemen's Quarterly years, years ago, wrote us up as one of the top three in the country. Um, we prided ourselves on, on really trying to be
be as good as we could be. I think that for a long time, you know, definitely when styles dictated it too, we were primarily a, a dressier clothing store. That's what people mostly bought. Uh, we did, I'd say, 70, 75% dress and 25% casual. And it was um, our ability, as I said, to be able to see as the trends changed, um, to switch that ship around. And I think, you know, by the time I was done, it was 70% casual and 30% dress. I have to throw in South Glen Mall, and a couple of weeks ago, John Fielder, the famous Colorado nature photographer, was my guest. And his father was big department store executive back east, and he fell in love with Colorado the son did. And when John moved here, he wanted to be like his dad, got in with the Denver Dry, got assigned to the South Glen store. It got taken over by the May DNF, and he, at age 29 in 1979, was the youngest department store manager in the May system, and South Glen's May DNF was booming. But by 1981, there was a little bit of a depression, and he liked nature photography, and he gave it all up. But did you know John Fielder was competing down the street with you? I mean, in a way, not the May DNF had big and tall I just found that fascinating, and and I hope you do too. Well, I do, and it's it's interesting as I come across people. Uh, how many older guys, and I'm not saying ancient guys, but older guys, and I tell them what I did for a living. How many ever worked in a men's store or shoe store when they were a kid or a young man? A lot of people have had a, had some somewhat of an experience of it, and one of the things that was also really prideful for us was when the dad would bring the son in and you got to get you know your first suit and years later the, the son brings his son in that's mm -hmm. very you know it's very heartwarming to know that you can sell anybody anything one time the trick is to get them to come back that's what we had that's what we did my wife, Trish, worked at KG Men's Store, I think in Cinderella uh -huh. City. And my brother worked at Fashion Barn, University Hills. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of stories that come close to home. Let's talk about your home right now in your closet in Colorado, because I don't imagine you take your ties to the tropical locations where you are. But how many neckties in your closet, Sam Kaufman? You know, when I retired, I I had this big tie rack full of ties, and I went to the tie rack. It was like a, a round, round wa uh, wire that you drape the ties over. I went to the tie rack, and I grabbed a handful of the top ties, the top on top of the heap, because those are the ones that I'd been wearing the most frequently. And I probably grabbed a total of 20, and then I gave the rest away. Where do you give them to? I would give them to um, quilters or, um, you know, I, I just gave them to, to charity so that, uh, you know, maybe somebody. I really like to work with people coming out of, you know, drug rehab or even people coming out of prison. I worked with the Colorado Rehabilitation they would bring people in to, to help them get started again. You know, just people that that needed an extra hand. You know, nice. I, I, I don't like to go to the charities that are for profit. 
You know, if you got the CEO of a big charity making, you know, a million dollars a year, where well, money's coming from somewhere. Well, why aren't there any tie exchanges? Because like in the DA's office, I'd see a dude with a nice tie and I'd say, boy, I'd like to wear one like that. So why don't we trade ties? Of course, they might not be big and tall, but my brother and I would occasionally trade ties. How come there aren't tie exchanges? Oh, I, I really don't think that it's it, it's really it's a, you know ties are personal. It's too and personal. The, That's it. Yeah, yeah, I think that sometimes you know, and sure enough, I'm going to trade ties with you, my favorite tie, and then you're going to go out and eat spaghetti and get a spot on it. You must have loved that in your industry. Everybody ruining their tie with spaghetti sauce or soup or whatever. Got to go back to Kaufman's because can you really get a bad stain out of a tie? No, you really can't. And if you clean a tie, you may get two or three cleanings out of it. Um, you can't. And uh, it's 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 just one of those items that, uh, you know, you got to take care of it. Like I always tuck the tie inside my shirt. Other guys would flip it over their shoulder. Other guys would wear a napkin up, you know, even though you, you, you'd look goofy at a restaurant with the napkin tucked under your chin, you save your tie. Uh, that's the one you look goofy. When you come back for the 130 docket and the judge says, Mr. Silverman, your tie, and it's tucked in, uh, you know, to keep it from getting a spot at lunch, and I forgot to take it out. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you probably had a backup there in your briefcase, right? Oh, no, no, no. I just had to take it out of my shirt. It was still tucked oh. in. But oh, no, th that was the problem yeah. for me. But, uh, I mean, the stories about ties and then keeping them straight. You know, sometimes you pull a tie up. You better look in America because it can be askew. I mean, so many things can go wrong with a tie. Am I right? Oh, yeah. And in fact, um, like you said, since you get up, getting it all the way up to the top of the shirt collar so you don't have that little bit of collar showing above the knot. That's really important. If it's, if it's done right, it looks great. If it's done halfway, it looks like it's halfway. And what happens, too, when little things like this go on, it distracts people. Yes. They may not be hearing what you're saying because they're looking at the terrible job you did on your tie knot or how you cinched it or just they're distracted by that. But I have a tie story for you. Please. Okay. So back uh, when Raymond Burr was here in town, um, the, he shopped in the store a lot and, and so did all the people for the shows from Viacom. And they all tell, tell us just about to Raymond Burr. How big of a man was he? I never saw him in person, even though he worked in the city and county building making those shows. Was he a big man? I, he, he was overweight. Was he tall too? He was huge. He was one of the bigger men I've ever seen. He probably was a 66 chest and maybe a 60 inch waist. And when he would walk, around the store and stuff he walked with two canes because he was so big the reason he doesn't look as big on camera is because they casted bigger people around him to make him not look as big it's just like if if you've got somebody like michael j fox sure he's a little guy so they're not gonna they're not gonna cast you know six foot five guys around him it's just gonna make him look smaller so he was a very large man. How tall? How tall a man? 
he's probably six six one maybe. Okay. So I get a call from Ron Reinhardt, the guy who heads wardrobe for him, and he says Raymond wants to come down to the store today. And I uh, just want to warn you, he just got done with a, a big sushi lunch, and he's been drinking sake. And I'm like, well, bring him on. So short time later, Mr. Burke comes into the store, and my dad's waiting on him, and they, they had a great rapport, and they got along great together. And all of a sudden, he laments about the fact that he can never find ties long enough. So at the time... Ties and tall at that point were 62 inches. And he's like, and I need my ties to be 64 inches, I think he said. And I just can't ever find them. And he also had to have specific ties. They had to be solids or they had to be little repeating patterns. It could never be a stripe or a big pattern because he would sweat so much that he would go through multiple ties in a day on a shoot. And if it was a striped tie and they're in the middle of a scene and he has to change tie to get that stripe exactly in the same spot on the knot, it's virtually impossible. So it's a little Princeton stuff. So I'm, I'm listening to this conversation and I went behind our cash wrap and I pulled out a catalog of a company called Jacob Roberts out of California at the time. And they had a swatch book of the actual swatches of the, of the ties and i brought it over to mr burr and i said i, I said these guys can make you anything you want any way you want it and he just lit up like a christmas tree and he sat down and he proceeded to order maybe i, I kid you not maybe 500 ties oh my gosh yeah he's ordering 12 of this one in navy 12 of this one in black 24 of this one and he's, I think he said he wanted them 64 inches long. And I was like, no problem, sir. So I'll place the order. Time goes by. The order comes in. They take them away. The next day, I see the wardrobe guys from Viacom pull up across the street. And out comes the boxes of ties across the street. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, we're going to have a problem here. So they come back in. And they're like, well, the ties are beautiful. Uh, Mr. Burr was a little tipsy. He gave you the wrong lengths. He didn't need them 64 inches. He needed them 66 inches. Oh, my God. I'm like, what in the heck are we going to do with all of these ties? And my dad, in his quick thinking, said, well, we have for a small charge, and we lose one tie, we can take the fabric from a tie and put a piece in the back that looks exactly the same. It'll never be seen because uh, it'll be in the back of the collar and he can get the length he wants. Everybody was relieved and it's a happy ending to the story. Thanks to my dad. Otherwise, I might still have these ties to sell. Oh my gosh. Raymond Burr, <laughs> tipsy on sake. That's a great story. What a character. Perry Mason. The legal world, I don't know what would happen if I walked into a courtroom without a tie. I don't think there's a formal rule. Every judge controls his courtroom, but that's one place you will keep cashing in. And on Zoom, we still wear ties. We don't necessarily wear pants, but we wear ties. So Exactly. And, and, and I think that's 
that's a lot of the the stereotype that's in my mind of the kind of people that are still regularly wearing ties. And I think it looks it looks great. I mean, when I see some of the newscasters and stuff just with a, a sport coat on and a shirt, it looks nice and well kept, but it doesn't look the same. And I watched the Denver mayoral debate. About half the mayoral candidates were wearing ties. Some were not. But some of those guys wore just the totally wrong tie for television. Can you give some fashion advice? What looks good on TV? What looks terrible when it comes to shirts and ties? Sure. Well, I I know from my experience, the one thing they really don't want you to wear on TV as far as a shirt goes is white. Correct. Because white white shirts like illuminate and, and it kind of throws the camera off a little bit. Mm-hmm. So soft muted colors, um, you know, blues, light tans, green, something that doesn't reflect the color. And by the way, I watched the the NFL shows and gosh, the way these guys dress, it just, you know, it's, some of them, it's just impeccable. And I look at the little things, like if you've got a plaid coat on, whether it's a suit coat or a sport coat, when they put their arm down, the plaid matches from the sleeve all the way across the body. It just it all matches perfectly. And the same thing you know, with with uh, with the, the ties. I mean, I see combinations today that I never thought I would see. You know, you know, a brown coat with a green tie, and I mean, I see combos that don't what I would think of, but some of them work really, really well. And um, as far as, as ties go on on television and, and such, I, again, I, I don't think it's the real bold things or big patterns because those move on camera. Right. That, that it's got to be a little bit of a – it can be a, a fashionable pattern. Or it can be a fashionable stripe, but it's got to be something that the camera is not going to pick up on. Again, anything that's going to distract the eye, whether you're in person or you're in, in front of a camera, that detracts from whatever purpose you're trying to do. Unless you want to distract. Jared Polis at his inaugural war, a Colorado flag tie. So he's probably wanting people to notice that. It's interesting the messages you can send on a tie. There are so many things, but I love your exclamation point. I'm definitely going to quote that. I just closed with one story illustrating another famous patron of Kaufman's Big and Tall because my favorite building in the world is the city and county building. And apropos of me talking about the Denver mayoral debate, and I'm also having all the candidates on, I would run into Wellington Webb every once in a while because he was the mayor on the third floor. I was a prosecutor on the fourth floor, but we'd see each other and occasionally we'd both be wearing this burgundy, all I could say, it was a color of a sport coat that your dad sold to the both of us that had everybody when we went to a ball game asking us where their seat was because it was the color of an usher. <laughs> and 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 Mayor Webb and I would kid each other like, Fred got you to buy that one too? Yeah, he got me, he got you. And <laughs> you probably can picture it and your dad selling it to us. And I like the coat, but... I didn't like being asked, you know, where people should be seated. That just seemed awkward. Well, I I, I respect that. And I, I, I'm smiling here and kind of crying a tear of laughter because I'm sure it wasn't perceived that way. It was just perceived as fashion. And one quick story on Mayor Webb. Um, 
who God bless, and I hope that uh, when you see him, you'll please send him our regards. I will. him and Wilma and his health. I believe my dad gave him his first pair of tennis shoes when he went on his his walking campaign. Uh, to yeah, to beat, my, to beat my boss, Norm Early. Way to go. <laughs> yep, so uh, yeah, he's still at it. That's great. I don't know if Norm ever got to your story. He was on the edge of big and tall, too. He probably got I don't yeah, I don't remember Norm, but another crazy guy we had in the store, and I sold clothes to a lot over the phone, was Hunter Thompson. Wow, was he tall? I didn't realize that. Or yeah, big. he was like a forty-two extra long. Really, he's a tall, skinny guy. Yeah. Uh huh. And then another guy up there, the the sheriff of Aspen, Bob Brownis, man, he was was a character. Oh, That's I did a wild meet bus him. Back there. He was almost yeah. exactly my size. What a great guy! Right. He passed away a couple years ago. So, yeah, he's he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. People came from far and wide, and with good reason. It wasn't just the clothing; it was the atmosphere. What a success story, and what a great son you are to Fred Kaufman, carrying on his legacy, speaking about him so nicely. I really appreciate you being my expert on neckties, and it's great to catch up, Sam. Well, thank you, Craig. I'm honored to to share a little bit of a, of our past and. If I can just tell some of the younger listeners out there, um, you know, when you see an older person, remember that person wasn't always old. Well, there you go. Are you talking about you and me being the old people now? Well, you know, the, the experiences that we have as we've gotten older, the kids may not even know that, you know, those things existed. So we're all, we've all been there, done that. And yeah, we are. They are part of the older ones now. And maybe I'm making assumptions, but I think the days when I could just walk in a courthouse without security, those are done. I think the day when I can have a great store like Kaufman's Tall and Big, between the internet and styles, those days are gone. And we can say, thank God we lived through them. We're so grateful. But there aren't, isn't going to be a Kaufman's Tall and Big like there was ever again, do you think? No. There never will be. And when we were doing our retirement, going out of business sale, I had so many longtime customers that came up to me and and I sold them enough to last them, you know, a few years. But they're like, Sam, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? There was no place that you could do one-stop shop like that. Um, and so I, I wonder how people struggle today. I'm interested how, how you struggle today if you got to go find something. Well, I mean, you can just order it online. If you don't like it, you can put it back. Most places take returns, but there's no schmoozing. There's no personal attention. There's nobody teaching you how to tie a necktie. But you know what? Fathers don't even teach their kids anymore because they watch it on YouTube. It's just a new world, right? It is a new world. And uh, glad to be a part of it, although I remember the past. Sam, you're the best. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Craig. My best to you, too. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark 
money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Troubadour, you are a troublemaker. <laughs> a troublemaker? Why? I don't know why you are. I didn't make you that way. You'd have to ask your parents, God, whoever was responsible. My wife would probably agree. Did she help turn you into a troublemaker, or was that no. prior to Lisa getting involved? I've been a troublemaker, I think, pretty much my whole life. A scofflaw. You might say that. In fact, the song you are singing today is one you ripped it off from somebody else. Almost every song we ever play is Dave Gunder's original. Every song, except this one. I know, but this was perfect. And you put it on an album. Why? This was a blues album, and it was the only album I've done that was, you know, is covers of of, uh, of blues artists. And I, that must be uh, Elmore James. Shake your money maker. I think so. I'm not 100% sure. How did it come about that you recorded it? I just wanted to do a bunch of different blues songs, and that one, that one rips it up pretty good. I, you know, I was playing slide on this cool old electric guitar I had found in a, in a thrift store for like 75 bucks. It gets in your head, that song. Yeah. Shake your money maker. Yeah. So what's your money maker? Well, what is my money maker? I guess it's my business. My business, my, More my specifically. day gig. My day gig, lookout renovation, is my moneymaker. I know, but here's my moneymaker, the subject of this show, a necktie, a lawyer's necktie. It's part of my uniform. It's my moneymaker. Sure. We all have uniforms. Mine's su substantially more, uh, less formal. What is it? Well, you know, tape I, measure? Uh, it depends if it's summer or winter. Do you carry a tape measure I, on your job? I do. When I come to do uh, estimates, oftentimes I do. You know what Chris Hansen said his father's good advice was? Why you might like him as your next Denver mayor? Why is that? Measure twice, cut once. That's, that is good advice for everybody. Yeah. I knew you would like to. Of course, and we say it, and it's true. Why not measure three times? It wouldn't hurt. Then you can start doubting yourself. Right. right. Then you can start. Yeah, that can be doubting yourself. Okay, twice is enough. I think so. How many ties do you have? 
I don't know. Your 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 wife Trish asked me that. I think I said three, <laughs> which is. I hope you didn't lie. I, I have more than that. I showed you part of my yes current your, sampling. your menagerie. How many do you have? There must there? have been. I mean, they were circling around on that cool little battery powered tie display thing you have in your closet. Um, I don't know, uh, over a hundred, wouldn't you say? I don't know, but I'm thinking about how much money and how rarely I re- I wear them because I just don't go to court every day. But some of those ties may have seen their last public display. Well, maybe it's time they found a new home. Now, let's think about that, because why aren't there necktie exchanges? I mean, you wear it a couple times. Why not exchange it with somebody who you saw at the wedding who probably is sick of their tie? If you exchange, you each have a fresh tie. Have you ever thought about that? A guy like me, 100 excess ties. Shouldn't there be a tie exchange? Shouldn't there be a new home? I think it's a great idea. And it pro- there probably is a tie exchange. I know that there's... Um, there what are kind like, of sick man but, are you? Would but, you wear another man's tie? Well, I, I can tell you what. You wouldn't want to wear mine. It would have like, you know, like scrambled egg on... on, on a little and, and some red wine. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. They put it Sater right in ties. a spot where men are going to spill. Yeah. And then you got to buy another tie, and that's where Sam Kaufman comes in. What a great interview! Yeah, I'd like to hear. Uh, I'd like to hear hear your show. Well, I'm looking forward to the show and to the mayoral candidate. And what is his name? Chris Hansen. Chris Hansen. Yes. And you were impressed. He wore his. Yeah, he wears a tie, and he well as mayor. His dad wore a tie to teach high school in Goodland, Kansas, every day. What about your father? What about? Henry, did he wear a tie every day to work? Abs- oh, we're talking about the 60s. I mean, his, his heyday was New York City in the 60s, kind of like uh, the mad, you know, Mad Men, uh, the show Mad Men. Everybody uh, that, wore a tie? Uh, well, I mean, it, it conveys just what, you know, the dress yes. style of that time, which was hats. They all wore hats and, and, and ties. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And a white shirt. And white shirt. Any other color? I mean, and dark suits. How many different ties do you think they your all, father had? I would take my I would take my dad to the to the, uh, the the deal was my dad and I split my first car. He paid for half of it. And the deal was I had to take him to the to the uh, train station uh, three days a week, right? And then for that he paid for half of it. It was a GTO, by the way, unbelievable nice. car, my best car ever. But anyway, I would take him and I'd pick him up at the station, and uh, all these guys, you know, getting off and. Uh, you know, the train, and they all look the same, you know. Uh, it was. Uh, and did your was, father teach you how to tie a tie? He did. Are you good at it? I am not. It's always crooked. I know. I, I should be better at it. But now you can learn on YouTube. Everything is different. But not this song, Shake Your Money Maker. What is the vintage of this song? When did the original version come out, do you think? You know, I wish I could give you a discography on this, but all I know is I think it's Elmore James because he had the energy and he was a slide. He was like the early slide dude. Um, I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking about, you know, these are, this is the, um, you know, artists in the, in the 19, you know, 30s and 40s, you know, the first wave really of, of black um, blues musicians who came from the South and up to Chicago, right? So, so his contemporaries would have been uh, Muddy Waters and, um, you know, uh, Lightning Hopkins and, you know, the early guys, early guys, even before B.B. That's so sweet. Denver had a jazz scene. I hope Denver comes back. 
I am going to be interviewing one of the uh, people who are the person who will become Denver mayor. I think I think they're all coming on my show. But the best part, Troubadour, every week, it's you. You are my moneymaker. Well, that's a nice thing to say. Well, the podcast just would not survive for profit without you. My advertisers say, without Troubadour Dave Dunders, <laughs> forget it, Craig. <laughs> Should I ask for a raise? No. Well, you've got your raise in your hand right now. L'chaim. Cheers. Shabbat shalom. To you too. Shake Your Money Maker by Dave Gunders. Sung by Dave Gunders. The only song in the world not written by him. <laughs> one, two, one, two, three. Legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at CraigsColorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Okay, now it's time for a semi-regular feature. It's called Troubadour 
Craig take on the culture. This week, we both watched the movie You People, starring Jonah Hill and Eddie Murphy in a comedy on Netflix. Troubadour, thoughts? I watched it on your recommendation. It is, it's it's a very interesting film. It's in, I think in some ways it's an important film because it it definitely addresses our prejudices. In this particular case, it's it's Jews and blacks. Although the Jewish component, I think, could almost just kind of weigh in as the white component. Um, but there was some there was some very direct language and some real um, problems that I think were were, were presented. Um, I I don't think the movie. It wasn't necessarily a great movie, and it ended in a in a somewhat um, predictable fashion. But um, th- they got down with some, you know, with some pretty interesting conversations. Like when, at, during during dinner when they were talking about, uh, you know, the, there was the, the the blacks and the white, the parents, and they were talking about the um, the, the you know slavery, and then uh, and then it came up about the Holocaust, and it was like, well, you're not comparing the Holocaust to slavery, are you? And those kinds of conversations, pretty pretty, you know, right on right on the edge, you know. But good good to see. Okay. I had problems with this movie. Jonah Hill, not a good Jew. Not in the movie, not in real life. Eddie Murphy's character just portrayed as an overprotective father who happens to follow Louis Farrakhan. And he has the kufi, the head of Louis Farrakhan, and there is no making fun of Louis Farrakhan in the movie, which I thought would happen. Julia Louis-Dreyfus playing a Jewish mother, even though she's not Jewish. That's okay. Right. But what about the David Duchovny character, rich, entitled, every Jewish trope, third-generation podiatrist? That's kind of unusual, although I am a third-generation Denver lawyer. But you're not third generation anything. Your dad immigrated here, and that's the more likely experience. So I just thought it was hard on the Jewish people, portraying them in every Jewish tropey way possible. And uh, Eddie Murphy seemed like, and his wife, who was a lovely person, nobody made fun of her in any way, just seemed like it was a one-sided attack on the Jews. No. No, and like I said, I think you could have almost injected any white family into the. It, it, to me, it wasn't. And that's a, a, enough. But so why big, were? Yeah. yeah. Why was it? Why was it the Jew? Why? Why was it even Jews? Why weren't they almost any right. white? It almost could have been that. Um, no, it wasn't a perfect movie. I'm. I've never been a huge fan of Jonah Hill. I mean, he's he kind of writes some interesting things. He's not a great actor, but he 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 even his character was flawed because he. Um, you know, I don't want to give stuff away, but he, no, yeah, I kind of liked on, it too. On, on one side, on one side, he was he was very authentic and um, sincere when it came to his love, right? His love for his bride, right? Uh, but but he was also such a bullshitter, and it, it wasn't any you know you couldn't blame Eddie Murphy for really looking at this guy and going, who who is my daughter marrying? This guy's a joke. Um, so it was you know it was a and kind you know of, what and and you know how they belittled him the worst that he's a podcaster. I didn't like that. Did you take that personally? Well, it's the pod, not like the, I quit my day job to be a podcaster, but... Craig, the podcast was the best part of the movie. His partner? Yes. 
was the best. I thought now this movie had problems with casting. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I wasn't real big on the casting, but she was great. Whoever that gal was, his, 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 his black counterpart on the podcast, she told it like it was. And uh, there was one discussion they had on the podcast where, you know, the blacks, where they, where she, where she said, where, where, you know, that, that, um, you know, blacks considered whites cheaters and still cheaters, you know, and that there would never be forgiveness. You know, this is, that this was a, you know, that this, that with with slavery and everything, this was a, this was a sin that was unforgivable and it's reverberating. And it's, you know, when I listened to that, I was like, wow, that's true. That's why I say in some ways this movie was an important movie. I agree. I was just giving you a shit. But a lot of Jewish commentators have put their criticisms online, and I think they're valid. Just like that scene in the synagogue during the Bedouin, the most holy part of Yom Kippur's service. They're talking. Right. And he's bickering with his grandma, and it's supposed to be funny, but would they do that in a mosque during uh, Ramadan? Yeah, I didn't take that in anything there personally, but, you know. You can make fun of the Jews. Jews don't count. What are they going to do? Uh, nah. they, they were presented okay. I mean, the mother had her prejudices. She was over, she was trying too hard, right? To yes. to, to, to uh, show her, her, her black um, daughter-in-law to be that she was, you know, a liberal, all accepting person. Um, and that was uncomfortable but it was yes. realistic you know you could it was see really, how it could happen yeah but that wasn't necessarily a jew again not necessarily a, a jewish response it was you know anyway it, it, right it, it you was, get it to a certain age look i was 38 before i got married my mom who used to say you know maybe you could find a jewish girl it's like can you find somebody and, you know, I said, well, mom, is it okay mixed marriage? You know, if I met a black girl? Sure, as long as she's Jewish. And then toward the end... Was that know, her being funny? No. Okay. No, but by the end, it was like, it didn't matter. I was getting so old. You know, I hear there's a nice Nazi <laughs> dance going on Saturday night. Cool. Maybe you can meet somebody. No. Any, anything that would, be, that would bring, bring her grandchildren. Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, now I've been married 28 years. Life is funny that way. Thank you, Troubadour. That has been our review of You People. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me 
or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, I told you this show was going to be great. And we delivered. Thank you, Troubadour. Your rendition of Shake Your Money Maker that had all the requisite energy. And that's what you bring to every show. Thanks again, Troubadour Dave Gunder, special guest, State Senator Chris Hansen. I think he's got a real shot to be Denver mayor and could do a great job if he wins. That's the important thing. Sam Kaufman, his job is largely done. He and his dad had one of the greatest clothing businesses in Metro Denver history. And it was my privilege to bring you that interview with him. Thanks for being part of episode 135. See you next week for episode 136. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.